Virtual masterclasses, online courses, score reading classes, and much more are all part of an exciting series of learning opportunities coming soon. Find out everything you need to know in today's episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast. The Metropolitan Opera Guild is dedicated to enriching people's lives through an awareness and deeper appreciation of opera. Our podcast features lectures and events presented by the Guild in support of performances at the Metropolitan Opera. The Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast is funded in part by support from the Stuart J. Pierce Memorial Fund. To learn more, visit metguild.org. While the stage of the Metropolitan Opera may be dark, we are excited to give you a sneak peek of the virtual programs that are coming in this new year as part of the Metropolitan Opera Guild's winter-spring season of learning. I'm your host, Naomi Baratera, and on today's episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast, we'll take a deeper look into our exciting array of programs through the eyes of some of our lecturers and presenters. Let's start with you, Naomi. You're back for another boot camp, this time exploring the world of fairy tales, folklore, magic, and enchantment. The operatic repertoire is filled with works based on these subjects, and audiences love to see stories from their childhood or cultural folk tradition brought to life on stage. So what was your favorite fairy tale growing up? Is there an operatic version of that story? And the most important question is, do you like it? Well, my absolute favorite fairy tale as a child was always Rapunzel. And while I know that at least one operatic version of it exists, a 20th century opera written by American composer Lou Harrison, I'm actually not very familiar with it. When it comes to opera, my absolute favorite operatic setting of a fairy tale is Dvorak's Rusalka. I loved Disney's The Little Mermaid as a child, but I didn't really realize that the story was based on a fairy tale until I was much older. And Dvorak's operatic version really highlights the Czech version of the story. There are so many things to love about how this opera tells the story. I personally love how rooted in the original folklore the characters are. And the score is just amazing full of leitmotifs that morph and transform over the course of the opera as the dramatic action develops. There is, of course, the famous Song to the Moon aria in Act 1, great music for the witch character Yeshi Baba, as well as great moments for both the prince and the father figure in Rusalka's life, the Vodnik. So there are some really big epic moments, but also a lot of subtleties in the score that are wonderful to listen for. And I think the whole score has a little bit of an impressionistic tinge to it. These washes of orchestral color that really create a mystical atmosphere. It was written in 1900, premiered in 1901 in Prague, so it really is right on the cusp of a new era musically. It's sort of in the last wave of late romantic works. It mixes the lush orchestration and leitmotif technique of the romantic era with turn-of-the-century impressionism in a really effective way. I also love seeing what different directors do with productions of this work. You have to remember that the title character loses her voice for the entire second act. She can't actually sing or make any sound, so the orchestra has to express all the things that she is thinking and feeling, 
and the singer bringing her to life on stage needs to really connect their physical interpretation of her character with what is happening in the music. And there are some great lines in the text of the opera that can inspire designers, text that describes characters and situations in extreme contrasts to one another. Things like cold versus hot, ice versus flames, passion versus apathy or frigidity. So designers can lean into these metaphors in the visual look of the production. And of course, there is the stage magic that you have to achieve if you plan on actually having water on stage for the pond or the deep lake that Rusalka lives in when we first meet her. And then finally, the end is both bitter and sweet, featuring both reconciliation and sacrifice, which always makes for a satisfying ending to A Night at the Opera, I think. What is it about magic and fairy tales that make for an enduring source material for so many composers? I think composers so often turn to, and still do turn to, fairy tales because they are stories that audiences relate to. There is a deep cultural context that audiences can connect with in a work that is based on fairy tale. I also think that fairy tales naturally follow narrative patterns that work really well on the opera stage. It works well with operatic pacing. You have characters that are introduced, they face some kind of challenge, they fight to overcome adversity, they face trauma or heartache, and then there's always some kind of resolution that even if it's not a happy ending, brings a kind of catharsis. So this gives a lot of points of inspiration for a composer musically. And I think that even the tragic fairy tales offer composers musical moments that are really fun to compose. Music that captures the fantastical, the mystical, otherworldly effects that let a composer's creativity run free. They can create new sound worlds that spark the imagination of the audience. There's also a lot of interpretive layers to fairy tales. The psychology of the characters can give a composer and a creative team so much to work with and explore. Oftentimes, fairy tales are very dark stories, and operas can express dark tragedy very well. And on a lighter note, fairy tales exist in many different versions, so there is a kind of artistic flexibility that the composer, the librettist, and the creators can play with in their operatic telling. What do you hope audiences really come away with from this boot camp? One of the things we are definitely going to explore in this boot camp is that idea of sound worlds. How composers create a musical language that communicates different aspects of the fairy tale they are working with. And these sound worlds and musical devices to communicate magical characters or the dark worlds of folklore changed over time. They changed and adapted to and in some cases established new trends. We're going to look at a wide range of composers that achieved success with operas based on fairy tales in very different ways. So while we will explore a wide range of works based on fairy tale stories that span a spectrum from charming to frightening, from tragic to happy, and a few epic dramas in between, we will also explore how music evolved and changed over time such that the expression of magic, enchantment, folklore, and fairy tale elements took different forms throughout history and sounded different. So my hope is that audiences come away with a deeper understanding of how different composers achieved different ways of expressing these kinds of stories on the opera stage, and how despite these different approaches, these works are still very much enjoyed by audiences today.
That was the voice of the iconic Maria Callas singing Echo il Velen di Laura from Ponchielli's La Gioconda. This spring, we will be presenting an online course entitled La Divina and the Callas Effect. We sat down with our lecturer Matthew Timmermans to talk about this course and Callas's role in opera history and legend. So tell me, Matthew, why does Maria Callas remain such a looming figure in opera history? I suppose it depends largely on who you ask, as we'll see in these lectures. As I tell it, Callas catapulted to fame in 1949 when she defied the established notions of vocal categories. One night she sang arguably Wagner's most demanding role, Brunhilde, and soon after she sang Bellini's Elvira, a high coloratura role requiring more delicacy and agility instead of stamina and power. Leeching on her fame, the EMI record label quickly offered her a contract to record their first complete opera catalog using the new Long Playing Record, or LP. In many ways, it was simply being in the right place at the right time, it seems. But her fame beyond the opera house and recording studio was assured, with her glamorous weight loss and operatic love life, making her a star both on the stage and in the tabloids. This leaves us with both a massive sonic and paper archive. She's simply unforgettable. So what are some of the reasons that you're excited to teach this course? Well, personally, I'm really excited to have the chance to reacquaint myself with Kalas. It has been some time since I last had the opportunity to do a deep dive into the nuances of Kalas's career and discography. My thoughts on music, performance, and identity have changed drastically, since when I first listened through Collis's catalog, so it has been a really eye-opening experience, perhaps even an emotional roller coaster, to be honest. Collis's life and music has been a welcome distraction from our current predicament, and these lectures are a chance to share a bit more about how I see, hear, and understand her with the Guild audience. On a less personal note, I'm really excited to share Collis's life and art with both new and well-seasoned listeners. As I mentioned, I've been thinking about Kalas in completely new ways, many of which derive from my initial reactions when first hearing her. I hope that briefly recounting my own relationship with Kalas will prove engaging and accessible to all listeners. Now, audiences already love Maria Callas, and you'll have a mixture of people in this course of people who are longtime fans and have listened to all of her recordings, and those who are just beginning to learn about this particular legendary singer. So what do you hope audiences come away with from this course? As I've already mentioned, I'm thinking about Callas in completely different shades and angles than I once did. In these lectures, I explore the ways that Collis' story has been told and by whom to separate the woman from the myth. In the end, I only really make it clearer how inseparable the two are and that it is really difficult for us to know Collis. In the most recent Collis documentary, Maria by Collis, Tom Wolfe claims to tell us Collis' story through her own words using documentary footage, a concept I'm quite uncomfortable with, to be honest, after all, he curated that footage to tell his vision of Kalas. My hope is that I will challenge and unsettle listeners' notions of Kalas and the ways we've thought about her and her legacy. 
1961, a wise critic named Elliot Steen noted that since Maria Callas is patently more intelligent than anyone who has ever presumed to write anything about her, the definitive book on Callas will be written by herself or not be written. Sadly, Callas never wrote an autobiography, so we must be responsible with the traces we have left of her. Callas sang roles closely associated with the bel canto period, and you are also teaching a bel canto study day. So what excites you about the bel canto period in particular, and why do you think we are still talking about it today, hundreds of years after it has passed? To be completely honest, I love the excessiveness, the over-the-top, and the simply too much of bel canto opera. It is seeped in the plots, but for me, most importantly, the music. These operas really test the extremes of a singer's vocal capabilities. It is fascinating to look at the careers of the singers who created these roles, to trace commonalities and special abilities they might have had that the composer tried to highlight. It really makes the score come alive. Opera lovers always enjoy comparing and contrasting singers. How will you explore this during the study day? They definitely do, don't they? I remember when I started listening to opera, I used to listen to the last 20 seconds of a bel canto aria with several different singers just to decide how, which high note I liked best. Although we won't do something that extreme on the study day, we will do something similar. In bel canto opera, performers are given a particular kind of freedom to embellish their vocal lines. This results in all kinds of vocal fireworks, which really make each singer's interpretation even more unique. On the study day, we'll compare how different singers ornament, including Beverly Sills, Marilyn Horn, and Edita Gruparova, and we'll also explore how embellishments changed over the course of the 19th century, from Rossini to Verdi. the Act Three prelude from Bizet's Carmen. This is just one of the many operas that are set in Spain. This spring, we'll explore some of those operas in a four-part course with Jane Marsh. I had the chance to chat with Jane about this program. Jane, this course will explore some of the greatest operas in the canon. Why do you think Spain resonated as a locale for composers like Bizet, Rossini, and Verdi, among others? There are universal themes strongly pervasive in Spain's rich history, and these really fascinated composers like Verdi, Mozart, Rossini, and Bizet, monarchy and struggle for power, clash between church and state, effervescent dance rhythms and colorful characters, hot-tempered women, and complexities of human spirit. This course will also feature six singers and a pianist, 
highlighting the Guild's continued commitment to presenting up-and-coming performers. As we're working during a pandemic, those performances will be filmed and shared with the audience during the course of the lectures. What do you hope the audience will take away from these performances? A big takeaway from the course is the individualized professionalism by the singers one-on-one -on -one with a visiting audience, and this in an intimate setting. That is, the level of professionalism demonstrated by singer participants brings the audience also visually closer to understanding the style, energy division, and focus needed to perform. The Guild is also hosting a variety of master classes and a vocal showcase, all featuring performances that have been filmed and will be shared with the viewing audience. What do singers take away from participating in a master class or vocal showcase? The takeaway for singers in master classes is different than in showcases. Master classes offer singers technical insight into the tools needed to succeed in the performing industry from professionals who understand and have succeeded in the industry. Principally, you do not want an inexperienced professor trying to impart performing and career tactics to satisfy his or her own ego. Vocal showcases offer singers opportunity to showcase their abilities in vocal style and expertise in uninterrupted performance circumstances in a large performance hall. This is a chance for performers to be heard while exhibiting their talents in indispensable and valuable repertoire like Verdi, Wagner, Tchaikovsky, Strauss, among others. We have some exciting virtual score reading classes being offered in this new year, looking specifically at Verdi's La Traviata, Berg's Wozzeck, and Mozart's La Nozze di Figaro. Here we have our score reading instructor Naomi Purley to give us a little bit more insight into these works and what these classes will be like. So tell me, Naomi, how do these particular works lend themselves to a score reading class? With our score reading classes this spring, we have basically two different dynamics that I think are going to play out. So with both Traviata and Figaro, those are two of the most classic operas of the canon. And I imagine that almost everyone taking the score reading class will have either seen or heard, if not the entirety of Traviata and Figaro, at least excerpts of them before. And so the way in which they lend themselves to the score reading class in particular is that we're taking these works that are really well known and really well loved and we're going to be able to delve in and look at some of the musical details that you might not have noticed before. So what exactly is it musically that makes these operas tick and that has made them become such classics? So that's really what we'll be looking at um, in the score reading classes for both Traviata and Figaro and why I think they lend themselves particularly well to score reading is just being able to get in and examine in closer detail some of the very particular musical goings on um, that makes those offers sound so great. With Wozzeck, we're going to have almost the opposite kind of setup. So I think most people who take the class might not have heard Wozzeck before, might not have gone to see it live, it's not performed all that often, or they might have gone and seen it and come away kind of bewildered because it doesn't sound at all like a typical opera, you know, in the style of, 
of Figaro or Traviata, you know, our 18th and 19th century opera traditions. It really doesn't fit that mold at all. It's a completely new style of opera that Berg was composing in the early 20th century. And so I think it particularly benefits from the score reading class because we can look at some of the, again, the more musical details of how exactly Berg composed it and specifically look at some of the really innovative approaches that he took to musical form, to tonality, um, and also just some little kind of musical secrets that he hid in the score, that things that only are really apparent if you do study the score. And so I think Wozzeck in particular is an opera where maybe if you heard it on your own and you didn't really like it or didn't really understand it, it benefits hugely from studying the actual score because it gives you kind of some more almost intellectual reasons to appreciate it. And then hopefully you go back and you listen to the opera again, you know, with the score in front of you, and you might find some things um, to appreciate about it, even if the sound of it um, is not really what you're used to listening to opera-wise. Each of these operas are very dense in their own way, with lots going on musically. So what are some of the key musical ideas that you want audiences to come away with and how will they benefit from a live instructor guiding them through these works rather than trying to explore them on their own? The key musical ideas that I hope students will come away from these score reading classes with a, with a bit of a new understanding, um, it relates a little bit to that initial question. So I think in the case of Traviata and Figaro, the main musical ideas I'd like students to take away are just what are the musical things that are happening that you maybe haven't paid attention to before that really make these operas tick. So what what are the specifically musical traits as opposed to the drama, the staging, whatever, that makes these operas so classic? And also what are the musical traits that make these operas so emblematic of their particular time periods because they really are both icons of, on the one hand, 18th century opera in the case of Figaro and 19th century opera in the case of Traviata. So we'll be paying special attention to that. And then in terms of Wozzeck, um, the main musical ideas that I'd like to take away um, will be taking a close look at Berg's use of both tonality and also atonality. So what musical systems is he using um, in place of our more conventional system of major and minor scales and how how does that really fit in? Um, we'll also probably take a bit of a look at some of the particular musical forms that he's using that are quite innovative um, for individual numbers, um, as well as the large scale structure of the work. And then I also mentioned in the previous, um, in my previous answer, um, there are some little musical clues and musical secrets that are kind of hidden in the scores, you know, additional secret meanings. So we'll definitely take a look at that as well. So those are the main things that I think the students will take away in terms of musical ideas they can pick up. I think the main benefit of having a live instructor Rather than trying to follow the score on your own and teach yourself a bit about the work, is just that it can be easier to follow along when you have someone who's kind of guiding you. So if you wanted to go and find some scholarly articles or handbooks about these operas to read and try to study the score on your own, you could do that. 
It would take you a lot longer than an hour and a half though because you'd have to go and find the right material to look at and then it would probably take you you know a couple hours to get through a 20 or 30 page article and read through it and try to understand what exactly is happening and then find the right spot in the score and then look at that spot in the score and so on. When you have a live instructor what I can do for you is I've already gone and done all of the research. I've read the articles. I've studied the score and I've chosen the points in the score that are kind of the most important or the most essential for us to take a look at together and I'm guiding you through it. So I can point out to you some interesting ideas and try to condense that information into a shorter period of time and make it kind of easily digestible and then you know I present the idea to you and then we listen to it right away and you don't really have that same kind of immediacy when you're just going through and trying to read about a piece on your own and pick through the score on your own. So what I would hope I bring to students is, you know, through choosing these particular excerpts to focus in on, I'm giving you kind of a more focused experience. So I'm telling you, go look at these particular spots and pay attention to these, and you can kind of leave the rest of the opera aside for a little bit of time. And if you focus in on these particular spots with me in the score reading class, then you can go back on your own and re-listen to those excerpts again after we're done the class. And hopefully you'll remember when you're going and listening again on your own, oh yeah, I remember Dr. Pearlie mentioned this or mentioned that, and it'll make a little bit more sense to you on your own once you've had that in-person kind of introduction. You can take some time to go and kind of further absorb things a little on your own. Another benefit of doing the score reading class with a live instructor rather than just trying to go through the score on your own is that you can follow the score along with me. So in all of our Zoom classes I have been putting the PDF of the score up on the screen so I've been sharing my screen and I keep my cursor while we're listening to excerpts I keep my cursor in place hovering over the music exactly where we are in the score and I'm scrolling through the score as we go. So I hope that that makes it actually a little easier for you to follow than if you're just looking at the score on your own at home. Maybe the music goes a little too fast and you get a little lost in it and then you're not sure where you are. You know with this you can just follow along exactly where I am in the score while we're listening to excerpts in class. So really at the end of the day the benefits of the live instructor are you get a tailored education, you get this sort of pinpointed look at these particular important spots and this will help you understand the whole opera, um, which would be really difficult to do on your own. And then also you get this additional help with actually following along the score um, because we'll follow through it together in class. Tickets for all these programs will go on sale January 11th. For more information on the Metropolitan Opera Guild season of programming and to purchase tickets, please visit www.metguild.thinkific.com. That's www.metguild.thinkific.com. And make sure to follow the Metropolitan Opera Guild, the Metropolitan Opera, and Opera News on all your favorite social media platforms to keep up to date on all things opera. I'm Naomi Baratera. And I'm Stuart Holt. And thank you so much for listening.